السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله My brothers and sisters, today the topic is about myths and superstitions in Islam. So let's dive into it insha'Allah. I'd like to begin with a verse of the Qur'an where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم قل هذه سبيلي أدعو إلى الله على بصيرة أنا ومن اتبعني الله says in the Quran say in brackets, O Muhammad, he's speaking to the Prophet's peace be upon him. Say, O Muhammad, this is my way and my path. The path which Allah gave to the Prophet ﷺ, to all of us. He says, tell them or say, this is my path. I call to it with clear sightedness, with clear sightedness, I and whoever follows me. Why did I start it with this verse? Because I want to first of all begin by explaining that Islam is a religion, is a way of life of reasoning, analytical thinking, wisdom, uh, contemplation, reflection, cause and effect as well. It's rational in a lot of ways. It's full of logic, full of reasoning. Even its belief system is based on reasoning and the intellect. So the word foresightedness means Islam is not a way of life that is based on blind following, contrary to what people say. Maybe you can say it about other religions, but not about Islam. And a lot of people make that mistake, subhanAllah. Islam is what we call the religion of truth or the way of life of truth. It's also called the natural way. Islam is called the natural way. It is not named after anybody or anything or any tribe or any person. It is a description and a noun. It is a verb and a noun and a description on its own, which means one who submits and surrenders to only God and Allah. Brothers and sisters, another verse in the Quran, which inshallah I'll bring, is an advice from Luqman to his son. But we'll get to that in a minute inshallah. So brothers and sisters, why did I start? Because there is nothing in Islam that does not make sense to the natural self and to the natural mind and the intellect. And Islam did not come to tell us to close our eyes and our ears and our brain and not think. Islam did not come to tell us not to discuss or to even question. Some people think that you're not allowed to ask questions in Islam or to question Islam. Well, it depends what you mean by that. To question out of rudeness, as if you know better than God, with a motive of your own or an agenda, is one way. And to question so that you can understand and know, and then to give your opinion if you like, that's fine. If you're a Muslim, Allah's words and His Messenger is final. Because when you believe that Allah is the knower of everything, and Muhammad is his messenger, there's no need to debate with them. Otherwise, you have made yourself equal to the knowledge of God. And do you recall the story of, of, of Iblis, Satan? In the beginning, Satan, Iblis, who was with the rank of the angels, God talks to us in the Quran, in Surah Al-Baqarah and other verses very clearly. And there's a big debate that happens between God, Allah, and Iblis, Satan, when he created Adam. You all know the story of when Allah told him to bow to Adam and all the angels bowed except for Satan Iblis. He refused and he said, I am better than him because you made me out of fire and you made him out of soil, out of earth, out of clay and fire is better than clay. A lot of people ask, well, what's the big deal? I mean, he just had pride. He just disobeyed God. Why did he become a disbeliever? The reason he became a disbeliever, brothers and sisters, are two reasons. Number one, he would not accept God's plan and his command. He doesn't accept it. And when you don't accept God's plan and command, it means that you are saying automatically you know better than God's plans and God's commandments. Which effectively brings us to the second thing. Iblis is saying, I am better than him, meaning, oh God, what you are commanding me to do is unjust. Which means that he believes God is unjust and he is more just than God. So two things, more knowledgeable than God, more fair and just than God. 
And there are lots of these types of people here on earth. They feel that it's not fair what God says. Well, then there's something wrong. You need to review how to believe in God and who God is. Allah says in the Quran, They truly have not given God his due worth of how it should be thought about. Anyway, brothers and sisters, in Islam, everything is based on reasoning, contemplation, reflection, using our mind, sight, hearing. That's what Allah says in the Quran. In fact, in the Quran, the following statements are repeated this many times. It says to use reasoning, rational thinking and analyzing 54 times it is repeated in the Quran. To clarify, verify and investigate information 26 times it's commanded in the Quran. To listen and comprehend is repeated 21 times in the Quran. Reflect and reflection is repeated 18 times in the Quran. To learn and understand, to understand 30, 13 times. And this goes also meaning, don't oppose until you have learnt and understood first. And also to use foresight and evidence 13 times. Brothers and sisters, the Quran is full of that. Allah even questions, says, uh, they, have, they have hearts which they do not contemplate with. They have eyes which they do not see with. They have ears which they do not hear with. And they have minds which they do not reflect with. Allah says, then what are they? This is like the livestock does. A livestock lives a life based on desires and temptations, eat, drink, and um, mate, and then die. Allah says, is this what I have created humans for, just to be like the livestock? Do no other purpose than that. Allah says in the Quran, وَلَقَدْ كَرَّمْنَا بَنِي آدَمْ We have honored the son of Adam. We have honored the children of Adam. So based on this, brothers and sisters, it brings me now to this. Myths and superstitions have no room in Islam. Myths and superstitions have no room in Islam. And the reason they have no room in Islam is because, number one, Islam is based on truth. Myths are based on tales. And stories that are not proven. They come from the past. They come from people's thoughts, their claims. A myth are tales and claims people think are facts, but they are not. And Islam does not accept falsehood. Number two, superstitions. Superstitions are irrational behaviors and beliefs people have which they link to some magical or supernatural powers without evidence that bring them good or bad like charms, omens, lucky numbers and days, events, signs, etc. These two are rejected in Islam and we are not relying on science to teach us this. Science only now has overturned in the Western world, it's overturned these superstitious beliefs and myths that existed in the past, especially in the Roman world. But in our world, the Muslim world, and by the way, when I say our, I don't mean Arab, I don't mean Indonesian, I don't mean African, I don't mean whoever you are, I mean our meaning the Muslims who have accepted Islam. In the world of Islam, since the time of Adam, Allah has already overturned this. That's why the Quran debunks magic, sorcery, voodoo, uh, illusions. You all know the story of Musa alayhi salam, Moses, when he had a competition with Pharaoh and Pharaoh accused him of he himself doing magic on the people, he himself wanting to uh, kick out the children of the Pharaoh's people. Pharaoh accused him. It's a long story. And Pharaoh said to him, why don't we come and have a challenge? He said, I can bring you sorcerers. They will challenge you. Although Musa, what happened was that he took out his staff, which God told him, throw it in front of them, it'll turn into a snake. God, that was a miracle. And Pharaoh, he accused him of sorcery and magic. So he said, we can bring you sorcerers, if you think you're smart. And Musa said to him very well, bring your sorcerers, but you have to do it on the day of celebration. The Pharaohs had a day of celebration. And he said, bring it in the dawn Duha, or just after dawn, so that everybody can see. Because in Islam, there is no ambiguities. Everything has to come to the surface. Even if there's something you're ambiguous about, you have doubt about, ask. Don't leave it unattended. 
So Musa said, bring out in the day so that everything is clear. And bring your sorcerers so that all the people can attend. Meaning on a day of celebration, don't hide and manipulate. Islam is right in front of you. Sometimes the false takes half a trip across the world before the truth has taken a step. And this is Islam. The truth does not, is not frightening. But the false will not last. So then he took him out. And the story goes on that the magicians threw their staffs on the floor. And it was made to appear. God says, uh, It was made as an illusion to their eyes. As if the staffs, the sticks were slithering. Obviously, this is an illusion. I don't know what they did. Something scientific, which they lied and said it's power and sorcery. So Allah told Moses, don't be afraid. Throw your staff. It'll stop their entire seher, their entire illusions of magic and sorcery. He threw his staff and it looked like it was eating all the other staffs. And the magicians knew that he was not doing magic. They knew because they may have had some potions or formulas that they used to make an illusion out of it. But they were tricking the people so that people can become slaves to Pharaoh and for the sorcerers to look like gods. And God will not accept manipulation through sorcery in order to create slavery out of people. That's what sorcery did. Because people by nature, when they can't make sense of something... They attach to something that they can make themselves believe in. That is why superstitions have come out. That's why belief in sorcery and voodoo came out. That's why people make up their own ideologies. That's why when something goes wrong and they can't find the answer, they create an answer. And if you try to come and tell them rationale and logic, they fight with you. They get angry. They get upset. They become emotional. They've got mental illnesses as a result. They don't want to know. Just to hold on to something to fake it. Fake it till you make it. That's what they say, right? Fake it through the life until they just survive. But Islam is based on truth. And when you have something that is truth and solid, you can put your whole heart into it, inshallah. And everything in your life becomes better. Islam came to care for our psychology, for our mental state, and to guide us. And to get us through this life with dignity, peace inside of our heart, and that ease within us. And to let us know our purpose, our identity, and why we're here, where we're going. Alhamdulillah, you believe in God and Allah. It makes sense naturally to believe that there is a being who created this entire universe. The problem is that a lot of people, when they say God, because of Hollywood movies and because of other movies or because of the belief in the Greek gods and so on, when you say God, people put an image to their head. They think of this big, big old man with a big beard who's up in the clouds. Subhanallah. That's just an imagination that people make. Who is God? Who is Allah? The one true God worthy of worship. There is nothing like unto him. And what's amazing is that right now physicists, they look at something called um, uh, the quantum theory, quantum physics, and they look at the black hole and it fascinates them. They're still trying to get their heads around it and they say it defies all laws of physics. How can that happen? We say God is even beyond that. If you can see something so phenomenal like that, God is even beyond that. He is the beginning of everything and he has no beginning, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Anyway, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, you can refer to a talk I gave last time about Qadr. I explain everything about God and why I believe on, in God. Anyway, brothers and sisters, this God is one and only. If you make partners with Him, you make partners with Him, you lose your guidance in life. Why? I'll give you an example. You have one father and one mother, which you were born from. Isn't that correct? Father and mother, man and woman, they reproduce, and you come out as their biological child. You have one father one mother. What happens to a child when they don't know who their father is? Are they in a good mental state? No. Problems happen. What happens when they're confused and let's say some other father raised them and then by the end they discover that they're not their legitimate father? What happens to the child? No matter how old you are, you go into a mental illness as well. What if you claim someone else is your parent knowing that they're not your parent? There's also a gap inside. It's not real. You're just convincing yourself. What if you discovered something about your parent that you don't like? You get trauma from it. To attribute something to some other parent other than your own parent creates mental illnesses in people. Imagine now when God, Allah, the creator of this universe, a person goes and worships other than him, connects to other than him, makes partners to him, says there's many gods. Puts their trust in some other God. Puts their trust in some things and objects that have no meaning, but they make meaning out of it. You will no longer be attached and connected to the one true God, and you're going to be lost within yourself. Not only that, those who make partners with God 
They start making their own morals and their own guidance. And then corruption starts to happen. We do live now in a godless society. It's becoming more godless than ever. And you can see how things are going bizarre. Everyone's saying whatever they want to be right and wrong as they please. Unimaginable fantasies, imaginations. They're making up things. A person can now call themselves a chair or a table. And we're supposed to sympathize and say yes. Yes, you are a chair and table. And we've got to show a serious face about it. And we've got to change our vocabulary. It's absurd. It's made, it's made up. It's not true. A man becomes a woman, a woman becomes a man, or something else in more than a hundred different ways. In a society where God is not in the picture anymore, or I make up a God of my choice, well then we, we live a lie. Lying society. Anything goes. Allahu alam what will happen next. Anyway, the point is, brothers and sisters, believing in one true God, not making partners with him, is guidance in your life sets the moral state uh, straight, cares for you, you know who you are, you know where you're going, you know where you came from, you know your purpose in life, you know what you need to do. And you know who to turn to. Superstitions and myths turn you away from Allah. This is called falsehood. Brothers and sisters, throughout history, people have made up myths and superstitious beliefs. Most of them are attached to religious beliefs, so they can become more believable. Especially the people who wanted to rule other people. It happened with the Babylonians. It's attached to culture or personal beliefs. From the so-called Greek gods Thor and Zeus, to zodiac signs, to burning witches, knocking on wood, human sacrifices to gods and idols, to giving special holiness to certain people such as emperors, sultans, caliphs, priests, monks or imams, to worshipping prophets, shrines and saints, to beliefs about God being like a human and walking the earth, giving holiness to animals, rocks, water, charms, amulets, special stones, angel numbers, believing black cats are a bad omen or bad luck, or cats bring, an angel, bring angels to the house and scare off the devils, to uh, looking, believing that looking in the mirror at night is bad luck, to throwing water over the shoulder is bad luck or good luck, walking under a ladder, the number 13, Friday the 13th, to giving holiness or superstitious beliefs to naturally occurring things, such as the eclipse. They put holiness to the eclipse, which the Prophet, peace be upon him, said when his son Ibrahim died and he buried him, an eclipse happened on the same day. And uh, people looked up and thought that there's something divine between the eclipse and the death of the Prophet's son. The Prophet ﷺ made sure he corrected them and didn't let them go astray and said, O oh people, my son has died and the eclipse is a natural phenomena which God makes happen in order to show us his magnificence and his signs. And there is a reason and a purpose why he did it. It has no attachment to a prophet or any man or any divinity. Uh, also, when they believe, uh, for example, in disease outbreaks, when you can't make sense to it, they try to attach something divine or some sense of it as they wish. Like, for example, COVID-19, when it happened, if you remember, people started making up thinking that it's some form of uh, apocalyptic divine punishment upon mankind and everyone or a sign of the Dajjal. And people associated so many superstitious beliefs and uh, conspiracy theories to it when all of it is just was an occurrence that had happened, which has happened before. Islam has always dealt with this. To the, belief on in, to, to the belief in karma, karma and reincarnation, and I can't believe that even some Muslims believe, think that, is, that Islam believes in karma. I don't think they even understand what karma is. We can come back to that. To the belief of the spirits of our dead families visiting us and roaming around us at home and around the places. Some people believe on Eid, they come out. That's Halloween. Halloween, brothers and sisters, don't believe in it. To believing in psychics and psychic powers, palm readers, tarot readers, or going to a fortune teller, or a religious figure to predict your future, to believing in certain rituals that they have healing powers, and so they avoid proper medication and going for treatment with real professional doctors. They believe in rituals and things like that. The list goes on, and it is endless, my brothers and sisters. These were all mankind, and Islam has eradicated that, so let us not fall into it, inshallah. These myths, brothers and sisters, and superstitions are so embedded in human beings and in history that you will find a professor who is a physicist, for example, and a scientist who would normally reject every irrational claim of any other belief, but they will believe in the most bizarre superstitious beliefs that goes against every rationale and every logic and reasoning. For example, a medical student 
who passes his or her exam and graduates as, let's say, a neurologist, would believe that the type of pen he or she used is the reason why they passed the exam. Why? Just because. Something inside of us tells us you've got to connect to something beyond us. It's true. That is a fitrah. Fitrah means a natural inclination. You want to connect to some higher power. But why connect to a pen or to a feather or to a dream catcher or to a coin or to a little stone or to a little uh, piece of something that your grandmother left behind and you think this is holy or something spiritual about it? No. These are made up things. Turning away from Allah. My dear brothers and sisters, you also have people who make uh, so many false claims about Islam which are not true or they are misleading, but Muslims themselves even have fallen into many misconceptions about their beliefs, thinking it's true. And this is based on ignorance or culture or what they've been taught or based on some bias or prejudice, beliefs they just want, and stubbornness. There are Muslims that way. So I'm here to talk to you about Superstitions and myths among the Muslim communities. I'm not going to talk about what non-Muslims think about Islam. I'm going to talk about what Muslims are doing that have crept into our religion, that I don't know are going astray. And many of them, I think this will answer why when you make dua, when you pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when you do these things, it's not working much for some people because the objective and the way you're doing it and the beliefs are mixed. Brothers and sisters, as I told you, Islam is a religion that tells us and a way of life to think, to ponder, to reflect, to reason. And just one very quick example so that people don't ask. Some people might say, well, you Muslims, you talk about not believing in superstitious or supernatural beliefs. Well, here you are you know, talking about an invisible God. Isn't that supernatural? We say, yes, it is supernatural. And of course, it has to be. Because if it wasn't supernatural, then God would be within his creation and he is created I can't rely on a created thing. He is bound by laws and he is bound and controlled. How could the one being controlled control everything? How the one being within his creation create everything and be bound by it? It doesn't make sense either. And that is why science is not the place to look for um, proving God. Science can only prove what is tangible, what moves, how the world works, how the universe works, what is with us right now. They can't prove anything beyond that. They can't talk to you about aesthetics and feelings and beliefs and morals, for example. They certainly can't talk about God. So the reasoning about God, one of the basic fundamentals, one of the things to think about are two things. Think about purpose and design. Who can repeat that? Think about purpose and design. If you look around you right now, do you see design all around you? Let's look at this mosque right now. You can look, just look at this human-made structure. Do you see around you design? Yes or no? You see design. You see colors. You see this beautiful architecture on the top. You look at the carpet. There is a design. Next question. This design, does it have a purpose? Is this mosque designed with a purpose or without any purpose? With a purpose. With a purpose. If you've got these two aspects, design and purpose, it necessitates, has to, without any doubt, that there must be an intelligent maker who deliberately planned and made it and designed it and pre-measured it and make it come to existence. It necessitates, has to. Now think beyond this human structure and look at the universe. Things which humans did not make. Do they have a design? They have a design. Have you seen the snowflake before? What does a snowflake look like? Does it have a magnificent, beautiful design? It has an amazing design, you can see under the microscope. Have you looked at have you looked at an atom? Have you ever seen it on Google, atom, and seen it in motion, the atom that you and I are made out of? Do you see how there's a little nucleus in the beginning, these things that they rotate around it? They're called, elect they're called electrons. Have you ever heard of that? 
Look at the design. Is that a design? Second question, does it have a purpose? Let's look at something easy. The sun, is it a design? Does it have a purpose? Of course it does. Since everything in the universe has a design, from the Milky Way to, to, the, to the, what is beyond the atom, what is subatomic, to beyond everything we can see, it all has a design and a purpose. It necessitates there has to be a designer, a maker, who is beyond our comprehension of intelligence. He is the all-knower, the all-powerful, the most wise, the merciful, the carer, the tremendous Lord of the worlds, Allah, the one true God. If I told you this table was made by a monkey, you would say to me, that's absurd. You didn't even see who designed the, the table. But because it's got a design and a purpose, you say it has to be a human because a human has the intellect and has the ability. Same with Allah. Therefore, brothers and sisters, it's still within reasoning, common sense. We're even talking about common sense and reasoning when it comes to God. Some people believe in many gods. They say, no, 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 we can't accept an invisible God who we can't see. We have to see something because, you know, it's just us. So what do they do? They build an idol. They make a statue. They create little talismans and little amulets and things. They turn a tree into a god. Some of them even made God, astaghfirullah, into a human who walked the earth, died and was crucified on a cross. Obviously, this is something that needs to be discussed and reasoned with. So Allah is one and only. To make deities doesn't make sense. Allah says in the Quran, and you worship that which you have carved with your own hands. You worship that which cannot eat nor drink, nor can do any benefit or harm to you. You put your trust in that which has no intellect and is nothing, which you created from your minds. And then you say about God things which you do not know. Were you there when God made everything? Were you there to see God? But you say upon God that which you do not know. So brothers and sisters, the fact that you're here, you have a design and purpose. There is an intellectual, intelligent Magnificent being beyond our comprehension, who is God, Allah. Superstitions are beliefs that people have that are connected to irrational things based on feelings, things like fear, anxiety, emptiness, lack of purpose, low self-esteem. And believe it or not, studies say that even narcissists, narcissists who think that they are everything, uh, believe a lot in superstitions to attach yourself to something that makes you feel good brothers and sisters they are divided into two parts major shirk and minor shirk shirk means making partners with God and there are two types major and minor the major one takes a person out of the fold of Islam you're no longer a Muslim the minor one you remain a Muslim but you have committed a major sin which you have to repent from because it leads you to major shirk. Major shirk is when you direct your worship or believe in your heart that an object, person, event in itself has godly powers or can be worshipped like a tree. For example, believing the stars can predict your future. Praying to an idol, praying to a dead person to protect you and bless you or make you enter paradise. Believing God's words are not correct. Believing a person knows your future. These are all major associations of partnership with God. Number two is minor shirk. When a person believes certain objects, people, events and so on are a reason or a cause for blessings, protection or benefit, but still believes wholeheartedly that Allah alone has all the power and He alone is to be worshipped. That's called minor shirk. An example, hanging an amulet or charm, believing it is a cause for good or bad luck, swearing an oath by other than Allah's name, slaughtering an animal by other than Allah's name, believing the stars have no power but are a cause for blessings, 
for you and knowing your future and so on. And this is when people read their star signs. I was born in January, I'm a this. I was born in March, I'm a that. You know, the, what, are they, what are they called? Huh? The horoscope, yeah, horoscope, zodiac signs. By the way, that's what Prophet Ibrahim was sent to eradicate and stop. The whole story of Prophet Ibrahim were to those Babylonians in Mesopotamia. It was all about zodiac signs and the stars and constellations and Jupiter being a god and so on. So brothers and sisters, let's move on. I'm going to now enumerate very quickly, maybe two or three minutes each, different myths and superstitions that I have seen in the Muslim world Many of them here in Australia and many of them overseas. And you can probably relate, insha'Allah ta'ala. So I'll just go randomly. Number one, myth number one. Wearing, carrying or hanging the blue stone or the blue eye or a horseshoe or knocking on wood or dream catches or hanging ayatul kursi on your wall or on yourself or hanging Qur'an verses, believing they will protect you from the evil eye, from bad luck, from harm, and from jealousy, by merely hanging up the words on your chest, or on the wall, or keeping them in your car. Brothers and sisters, these, except for the Qur'an, the rest are called minor shirk. The Qur'an part, if you believe those words are going to protect you by merely hanging you, this is just misleading. It's like wearing Panadol around your neck, believing that it will stop your headache. Brothers and sisters, the Quran is to be recited. Yes, the Prophet ﷺ in an authentic hadith did uh, uh, give permission to Aisha to write some the, the quls, and place them on Al Hassan and Hussein when they were little babies. But other than that, no, we don't do that. We recite the Quran. But as for the rest, believing that you can put that blue eye and put it on, or some people have ayatul kursi on a gold plate or silver, and they have a little blue eye next to it or something like that. Sometimes they have it as a bracelet, and they have lots of eyes around, blue. Some of them, they put it in a horseshoe with an eye in there. Some of them, they hang it up. If you've ever seen that, if you believe that they have godly powers, that is major shirk. But if you believe that they don't have godly powers, however, somehow they are a cause or a reason to keep away the evil eye or bad luck, then you have committed minor shirk and it is a major sin to believe that. But if you wear it because of decoration, your grandmother bought it for you and you don't want to say no to her, then it's not a sin. However, it is better to get rid of it as soon as you can. Why? Because it's a kind of promotion for it. Because pe people still do it. I know it's a big example to give, but it's like, for example, people how they worship or believe in the cross in such a way. A Muslim shouldn't wear the cross even if they don't believe in it because you are promoting that belief. Had it been before uh, Christianity came out, you can wear a cross. It's not a problem because it has no association to any particular beliefs. The second myth or superstition is knocking on wood. I know I mentioned it, but I want to mention it again. Knock on wood. Where did this come from? It came from an ancient belief, not from Muslims. I think from Greek theology or something else. Where they believed when uh, soldiers and warriors and righteous people died, their souls entered the forests. And so whenever they took wood from the forest, they said, knock on it, or touch wood, touch wood, knock on wood, touch wood, knock on wood, to keep away bad luck. Somebody praises your health, you come and say, I've never been to the hospital uh, Alhamdulillah, touch wood, touch wood. Or, Wallah, I've never needed to take medication. Touch wood, knock on wood. Somebody praises your newborn. Say, MashaAllah, look how beautiful they are, their eyes. Wallah, Alhamdulillah, knock on wood, touch wood. This is a type of minor shirk. But if you do it as a habit, it's neither shirk, inshaAllah, and not a sin. But if you are aware of yourself and you deliberately do it, it becomes a sin. Because it is connected to a false superstitious belief other than Allah. Number four. Myth number four, venerating imams, shaykhs, scholars as holy beings. For example, believing the imam's du'as is stronger than yours, making an imam carry your baby to bless it and so on. You guys might be thinking this is ridiculous. Brothers and sisters, wallahi it happened to me and it happened to my colleagues, the other speakers and shaykhs who I traveled with many times. 
You see in some bizarre places, a sister comes with her baby and throws her baby on you, thinking that we somehow can bless the baby just by carrying it. These are false beliefs. They are minor shirk to believe that a human being like me or you or someone who has a beard or somebody who looks holy or somebody who dresses looks like the companions, somehow they've got some holy vibes coming out of them. No. This is a minor shirk as well. Brothers and sisters, myth number five. Visiting the graves of loved ones on Eid, on Friday, on Ramadan, or any other special religious day, thinking it's more blessed or that the dead benefits in some way because of that. Some people even believe that when you go on Eid to visit the grave, I've had this asked to me a lot. This is actually, uh, I think it's a Christian tradition. They go on Easter and Christmas. And subhanAllah, we need to copy them. I don't know why. It's, it's, it, it can be a sign of, low, of, of ignorance or something's missing in our beliefs or we don't know. And some people do it innocently. So going on Eid to visit the graveyards because we think that the dead is going to benefit. And some people actually believe that you are sending them Eids. You're going there to actually say Eid Mubarak. The person has died. Their worship is gone. There is a barzakh. Allah says, After they die, there is a barrier until the day they are resurrected. Barrier meaning they have no communication with you. You have no communication with them. Except in dreams. That's another story. Some people go to the graves to sprinkle water or to water the grave, especially when they think that the dead person drinks it or benefits from it. I see it all the time. But some people, they do it to grow plants or something. That's another story. But if you do it thinking that they drink or you benefit the dead somehow, this is not from the Sharia either. And it is a form, of, it's a false belief. Myth number six, giving holiness to animals. For example, believing cats are holy animals and having cats in the house brings angels, scares off jinns and so on. Wallahi, I've seen this on Facebook. I don't know where people get this information from. Where do you get it from? That's not the sad part. The sad part is it gets so many views and likes and people actually comment how their iman rose. What, because of someone saying something? What about the evidence? Ask for the proof, ya akhi. Where is this from? We have two sources. The Qur'an and the Sunnah, the way of the Prophet And obviously if it's not there, we look at the consensus of the companions and then it comes ishtihad to look at what the scholars said. The Qur'an and Sunnah has nothing about cats being holy. Yeah, Rasul used to like, used to allow cats to come around, they're clean. But he also allowed dogs to enter the Prophet's masjid. They would come in, the people would feed them and they would go out. Sometimes Rasul would make wudu from the, from the jar, he would, from the container, he would give a cat to drink. As he's making wudu, he would give the cat to drink and he would continue his wudu because cats are considered clean. The, clean for our system. Obviously, you don't go and put your mouth on the cat's mouth. That's bad. But in general, we become immune to their, uh, to their uncleanliness. So brothers and sisters, there's nothing more holy about a cat. So please, brothers and sisters, don't just believe things without investigating. Myth number seven. Folding, he'll like this one. Folding the prayer mat, otherwise the shaitan will pray on it. Uh, closing the mushaf, the Quran mushaf, otherwise the shaitan will read from it. Uh, or bad to leave your shoes upside down. You have to, or you have to put it up, up, right side up. And this is what they say, because the shoe, the bottom of it is unclean, they say, and it's disrespectful because it's directed towards the angels in the sky and I don't know what. All of these are made up. There's nothing in Islam about that, but people make it creep in. Again, insecurities that make us feel we have to connect to something and as if we're doing something. Yaqi, if the shaitan will pray on my mat to Allah, I chuck a party. My shaitan converting to Islam. Please pray all you like. Shaitan reading my Quran. Woof, I would love that. The shaitan converting, reciting the Quran. Shaitan does the opposite. So do you understand what we're talking about? Uh, myth number eight. Thinking that kissing the black rock that is in the Kaaba, 
for those of you who go to Hajj Umrah, and touching the Kaaba blesses you somehow, or giving special wholeness or sacredness to the beads that you make dhikr on, the masbaha. Let me explain. The rock, the black rock itself, there is nothing special about you touching it. It will not do anything. The only reason you touch it is because the Prophet ﷺ touched it and kissed it. So it's out of practicing what Allah sent the Prophet to teach us. And why did he touch it and kiss it? It's a form of respect um, for where this rock came from. That's all it is. It's got nothing to do with holiness. That's why till today, if you ever go, brothers and sisters, and you can't get to the black rock, my advice to you is do not shove yourself through those people just to kiss and touch the black rock. You haven't done anything. And I think that a lot of people actually earn sins by shoving through the people just to kiss or touch the black rock by hurting people along the way. Or to touch the Kaaba at the expense of pushing people aside. Did you know that you earn sins, especially around the Kaaba, more, more than any other place when you hurt your fellow human beings, your fellow brothers and sisters around the Kaaba? For the Prophet ﷺ stood up in Hijjat al-Wada' in the last sermon in front of the, in, in Arafah, in Hajj, and he said, Behold, the blood, the honor, and dignity, and the property of every Muslim is more sacred than this holy month we are in, than this land I am standing on, Arafat, than this holy sanctuary that we are in, meaning the Haram of Mecca or, or Mecca. The Muslim's blood, honor, and wealth is more sacred than that, more than the Kaaba. Do you understand, brothers and sisters? So, religion, Islam is not a. It, you got to think up here, man. It's not about ritualistic, symbolic things that makes you something. No, it comes from within. And there's great purpose and meaning. Next, myth number nine. We'll keep going with these acts of worship. Wiping the brass fence surrounding the prophet's grave, or a companion's grave, or a righteous person's grave, believing there is blessing in doing so. There is nothing in the Quran, or in the entire seerah or sunnah of the Prophet where he did something like that or told us to do something like that. I mean, if you want to touch the brass, that's the Saudi government. They made that brass or whoever was before them. They built it. It's people who got brass from somewhere and they made it there. And then we're rubbing our hands on the brass. No, my dear brothers and sisters, this is not how blessings and loving the Prophet ﷺ is. If you love Allah and you love the Messenger, then follow what Allah said in the Quran. He says, قُلْ إِن كُنْتُمْ تُحِبُّونَ اللَّهَ فَاتَّبِعُونِي يُحْبِبْكُمُ اللَّهُ وَيَغْفِرْ لَكُمْ ذُنُوبَكُمْ Say, O Muhammad, if you truly love Allah, then follow me. Allah will love you back and he will forgive your sins. Loving the Prophet ﷺ is following him. Not touching brass and his grave and all that stuff. There's nothing wrong with touching the brass or grave, by the way, but it's the belief that you attach to it. Can I go back on the beads so people don't misunderstand me? And some people might call me names, I don't know. The, the, the masbaha, the beads, which people use these days to, and from the past to count their dhikr, to say subhanAllah, alhamdulillah, la ilaha illallah on them. Now, there's nothing wrong with using them at all. And I go with the scholars' opinions, not from myself, the scholars' opinions who I follow, my teachers, that the bead is not a bid'ah, it is not an innovation in Islam. People can use the bead. Because the whole purpose is to count your tasbih, and because the Prophet ﷺ said, whoever says subhanAllah 33 times, alhamdulillah 33 times, Allahu Akbar 33 times, he will get this or that. So if you use a mechanism, whether you use a counting clock or you use the beads to count those 33, nothing wrong with that at all. The problem is when you start to attach a belief to those beads, you start making those beads holy in some way. They're just stones. So some people, they say, oh, once I, th I saw a child you know, accidentally step on the beads. And a brother next to me, an elderly, he, he, he was infuriated. Don't let the child fall on the beads. This is holy. This is haram. Subhanallah, the child was traumatized. No, 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 no. That's not what you do. Wallahi, the sacredness of that child and his heart being in the masjid is much more important. Much more important than scaring him from the masjid. Oh, no, 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 no. 
Rasulullah was in sujood. People were praying behind him. Hassan and Hussein, little tiny toddlers, they came and went on the Prophet's back. And he would not get up until they got off his, his shoulders, making everybody prostrate until they got off. And when he got off, he, sh- he put him on his lap and he kissed them, showing that we are an ummah of mercy. And this masjid is for the kids as well, you know. Obviously, when you bring your kids, you've got to keep them next to you if we're praying in jama'ah, brothers and sisters. Don't let them run around and disturb the, the mu'adhin, oh, sorry, the, the imam, if they're too small. But what I'm saying is bring them and let them feel the mercy and the warmth and the comfort. So the beads, brothers and sisters, have no holiness to them in particular. Next is myth number 10. Things about food. Some Muslims believe that uh, you cannot eat predator fish like the shark. They say it is haram. I get a lot of these questions asked. Crustaceans. Um, some people believe that the animal is not halal if it's slaughtered while not facing the qibla. They believe that you've got to face the animal's head towards the qibla and slaughter, otherwise it won't be halal. Or they say if a Muslim forgets to say, if a Muslim forgets to say Bismillah, they say it is not halal. These are some examples about foods that are really myths. Uh, I have to say though that some schools of thought have made an, uh, a little exception about crustaceans, um, you know, like like uh, shellfish, crabs, and things like that. But the majority of the scholars have said that all of this is halal and there is no text in the Quran or in the Sunnah from Prophet that tells us crustaceans are haram and the Prophet did say the hadith is in Bukhari which means Al-Bahr, the ocean, when he talked about the ocean all of its water is clean anything that comes out of it dead or alive, even dead so you don't have to slaughter the fish when you take it out it is halal. And there is another hadith in Sahih Muslim when the Muslims were coming back from Tabuk, I think, and they found a big whale washed to shore. It was dead. And they didn't know whether to eat from it or not. They said it was massive. And they were very hungry, so they ate from it. And they said it was so huge that we can crouch inside of the eye socket. That's how big it was. And we said to the Prophet, we ate from it, Ya Rasulullah, because of necessity. And we don't know if it was halal or haram. It was dead. And he said, do you have any more of it? And they said, yes. He said, give me some. And he ate some. He ate some, which is called a sunnah taqririya. This is a fiqh terminology. Sorry if you don't know what it means. It's a sunnah which the Prophet affirmed. So we are allowed, insha'Allah. Myth number 11. Now we're going to get a little bit sensitive here. Believing men are superior to women. Now I know that a lot of you will say, we don't believe that, alhamdulillah. We are Muslims who don't believe that. But would you believe that silently and within families, within cultures, they practice that? That men are superior to women. I know a lot of you are smiling to me saying, is this day and age, brother? This day and age? Women are superior to men. Yeah, in different societies. But a lot of people attack Islam and also some Muslims themselves in other countries of the world have this belief. And I'll give you some examples. They take it from the idea, the misinterpretation, misconception of verses in the Quran and Hadiths. They think that men are superior to women because of false evidence. One, they say, Eve... Hawa was created from Adam's rib, which is crooked. And that is why she is crooked, crooked-minded, and deficient in her brain more than the man. This is uh, an internal belief, subconscious belief, some, a lot of men uh, have. And I can tell you, Francis, there's a long study on this, that the correct... Uh, view is that Eve was not created from the rib of the man. And they use scientific pseudoscience. They say that's why the man has one less rib, which is also false, by the way. It's just embarrassing. So Eve was not created from the rib. Rasulullah did say she, a metaphor, not literally that he was, she was created from his rib. And the metaphor of the rib being crooked does not mean that she is crooked. It means that she is perfect in the way God made her for the purpose he made her as a mother, as a woman. Had she not been like that, things in life would be crooked for all of us. So it's like a jigsaw, if you like. A jigsaw, if you put it together, each piece has to be a different shape in order to click together. So the man has a way and a woman has a way. Compared to the man, she thinks away from his uh, straightforward thinking. 
And straightforward thinking is used in some places, and um, innovative thinking and creative thinking is appropriate for other places where the man cannot fit. So all of them have the, it's, a, it's actually a strength. And men have to understand that part of her, leave her and appreciate her and accept her the way she is. This is how she's good for you and for your children. Anyway, let's move on. They also say that is why men have one less rib, which is scientifically false. Eve made Adam eat from the forbidden tree. That is why women inherited influencing the man to do bad things. I've heard a lot of Muslims say that. Eve did not make Adam eat from the tree. It was the shaitan who influenced both of them. And in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blames Adam more than what he blamed Hawa. And when he blamed both of them, he said both of you. Didn't even mention Hawa's name in the Quran. Alam anhakuma. Did I not forbid both of you? And the only time he mentioned a blame with name, he mentioned Adam because he was the first one that Allah commanded. So it was not Eve's fault that Adam ate from the tree. Another thing they say, that the punishment of a woman committing adultery and fornication is worse than the man. Why? There is no such thing. No such thing. Anyone who tells you that, tell them, you know, if you don't have evidence to what you say, be silent. Uh, they say it is that a son is free to do more haram than the girl. Based on what? Oh, because she's a girl and, you know, her dignity is more. No, no, no. In Islam, haram is for both exactly the same. You are actually making haram what is halal. Uh, sorry, you are making up a haram for one and not for the other. And this is what the Quran talks about the children of Israel, the Jews did. And people of the past, how they altered and changed. And in fact, the Arabs at the time, the Prophet ﷺ, the Mushrikeen, the idolaters, that's what they exactly did. They made gods, angels, females, and to them they've got male gods, which they worship like they're better. As if God is, is less. Even though to God he says male or female, we don't know. Allah says, لَا تَدْرِ أَيُّهُمَ أَقْرَبُ Your fathers, your mothers, the males, the females, in other words. You don't know which one is more beneficial to you. Allah did not. In fact, the Quran says, وَإِذَا الْمَوْؤُودَةُ سُئِلَتْ بِأَيِّ ذَنْبٍ قُتِلَتْ When the female infant, infanticide, was uh, practiced, the infant baby will be asked on a day of judgment for what crime was she killed. Anyway, brothers and sisters, all of these are fallacies and false. Uh, there's one more. They say it is why boys get double the share of inheritance than the girls. Yes, that is true, but there's a reason for that. And the girls, it's equalized. She gets another share which the boy doesn't get in other circumstances, such as the mahar, for example. Such as whoever marries her has to spend on her such as her father has to spend on her, such as she is never, ever, ever, ever financially responsible for anybody in her entire life from birth to death in Islam. So it's compensated. Uh, Islam says the boy gets it because he has a responsibility with the other half towards his wife, his mother, his uh, sister, if she is in need, to his daughters and sons. That's why. Anyway, brothers and sisters, I just wanted to make this clear and shallow, and there are other reasons. Postnatal bleeding for the woman. She, they say she is impure, she cannot, you cannot touch her, she must isolate herself, all of that stuff. This, my dear brothers and sisters, in, is in ultra-Orthodox Jewish religion and in other beliefs, but not in Islam. The woman is not impure during her menstruation or her postnatal bleeding. She is only spiritually not ready or pure to pray. And that's the same for men when they're in a state of junub. You know what junub is? Same. Meaning Allah says you don't pray at that time. In fact, menstruation is to keep her healthy and to keep her pure so that your babies can be born. Otherwise, your babies will not be born. And she will get sick. So this is a cleansing. And Allah gives her time off. But she can still make dhikr, she can still make dua. And the opinion I follow among the schools of thought is that she can recite from the Qur'an, at least by heart, and make dhikr because there is no textual evidence in the Qur'an and Sunnah that is authentic, that forbids her. There is one hadith that is da'if, it's weak. And in Bukhari, Aisha radiallahu anha, in Hajj, she had her menstrual cycle and the Prophet ﷺ said to her, do everything a Hajj person does except tawaf and salat. So except circumambulation and salat. He didn't tell her to stop reading Quran. Mu'adh uh, ibn Jabal radiallahu anhu, 
also was asked and he said yes she can read the Quran and make dhikr and those who say it's disliked it's out of safety and those who say it's haram it's out of ignorance the Prophet never forbid any of this moving on myth number 14 (laughs) women should not attend the mosque that is a myth I don't know where they got that from this is an over this is an exaggeration you know, making things more difficult. Rasul do not prevent the servant women of Allah to go to the masjid even at night. And in another hadith it says, go to the masjid, let them go to the masjid without any perfume on, so that men don't smell it from a distance. A woman can put perfume from a small distance where you have to come really close, we have to come close to smell it, but not the type that lingers and goes out when she walks. So that's how she goes to the masjid. However, Rasulullah did say her prayer at home is her, her prayer at home is better, but it doesn't mean she doesn't go to the masjid, and that's because of her circumstances, right? But for men, it is more stressed. Next, 14, uh, myth number fifteen: engagements and weddings. They say it is haram to marry your cousin. False. Once engaged, it's halal to touch between man and woman. False. Engagement means that you're still strangers to each other. The engagement period is the period of time that Islam allows you to meet, talk, ask those 12 questions that I told you about. Engagement period is when it's a promise for marriage. It means that you get to see her, to know her, to talk to her. She talks to you. Best off within supervision. Best is at her house. If not, you can do it in public. It's better to have a chaperone. If you can't do that, some people have converted to Islam they don't have any family members but it's okay even a non-muslim brother non-muslim cousin non-muslim father can be along with them if you have absolutely nobody else you can be in a public place so long as you are safe from any fitna between each other and you talk what is necessary can you talk on the phone yes can you text each other yes can you talk on social media yes there's no haram to it brothers and sisters I don't want anybody to come up and say no and try to be a super muslim it is not haram so long as you stick within the boundaries of respect and halal and I advise everyone to let your parents know within your ability especially if you are very young you are young you know you're 18 19 20 25 and you haven't had experience in relationships or marriage before as for older people it's a bit more flexible because they do know about relationships better they can control themselves better anyway let's move on it says here that shima ah, here's something about weddings and engagement i discovered there's this custom they say i don't know i know it's in the arab tradition at least lebanese that the bride and only the bride must wear the scarf and only in front of the imam so when I go there I'm doing the marriage you can see myself, there are other sisters that might not have the hijab on right and the sister maybe the bride maybe doesn't wear the hijab so she comes up and puts the scarf on but only in front of me now I, I appreciate that because out of respect for me I, I really like it but to believe that this is a, a, an Islamic tradition that you're supposed to wear the scarf in front of the imam is not something of, um, of Islam should be wearing the hijab inshallah all the time uh, it says here that if you do not recite the fatiha for an engagement the engagement is incomplete i don't know about your culture in my custom when you go and get engaged and you ask for the girl you say we want to we want to get to know each other and they say okay very good yalla let's now recite the fatiha and if you don't recite the fatiha they feel like the engagement hasn't gone through there's nothing in the sunnah that you must recite the fatiha and uh, it says here they say Engagement and wedding rings, a mahbas, in Arabic it's called a mahbas, it means you're imprisoned. Mahbas, called a mahbas, which means you're imprisoned. Can you believe that? Wow. And uh, they say it is part of Islam. No, the wedding ring is not part of Islam, nor is the engagement. I mean, if you want to put it on, that's fine, but don't make a belief in it. Uh, The wife must change her surname. This is a myth. This is not taken from Islam. In fact, in Islam, a wife should be called by her father's name. And that is her identity. Uh, A divorce can only be done by the husband, but haram if the wife does it. That's wrong. A wife should not tell her husband to divorce her. But she has a right to something called khula, which is a different process of divorce. That's what I think the misunderstanding when people say any woman who asks her husband for divorce the angels curse her I don't know what they bring up all this stuff right yes it is true it is not it's 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 Rasul 
told the women not to ask their husbands for divorce. That's to ask the husband to divorce them. But for a wife, if she's not happy in the marriage and there is, um, you know, it's gone toxic and she, she, she wants out because she can't fulfill her duties anymore, she can go for something called khula, which is a different type of divorce with different conditions. There is always a way out if things get really nasty. So that's what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said. Also, it says here, the father can refuse even under, the unre- even under unreasonable circumstances to marry his daughter off. This is also false. Unreasonable circumstances, the next wali is her grandfather. After her grandfather comes her son, if she has a son. If her son is not there, it's her brother. If it's not her brother, then it's her uncle. If it's not her uncle, then it's another member uh, um, related to his father, her father. And if nobody wants to do it, then the imam becomes her wali. Or she can choose one. So there's always, inshallah, halal, we make it easy so the haram can become difficult. Uh, it also here says, um, the son must get his parents' approval. In Islam, the son does not need his parents' approval for marriage. Of course, it's better to have their blessings and be around. And parents should not make it difficult. If his mother asks him to live with her, he must. Otherwise, he is sinful. Wrong. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, be good to your parents, he didn't say, obey them in everything. He said, don't obey anybody if it means disobedience to Allah. And it's haram for parents to oppress their children and tell them, I will use the verse again. It's like some of them don't know any other verse. Your Lord has told you not to worship other than Him and to be good to your parents. Some people change the word to be good to them too and obey. Yes, obey, but not in the things that they have no right to be obeyed in. Your wife, for example, has a right. Your children have a right. Put everyone in their right places. Brothers and sisters, myth number 20, myth number, uh, I don't know what number it is. Hijab means only covering the hair with a scarf. A lot of our sisters have now, I've seen this trend come up, where they only think that uh, hijab or covering yourself means just the hair. The body is more important than the hair, do you believe it or not? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, their outer garment which they cover their clothes with. So whatever she's wearing, there's an outer garment. And that outer garment, so long, even it can be a long top and a long skirt, it's not a problem, but to draw her over them, meaning to cover herself. So the body is more important than even the hair. Uh, Myth number 15, parents or children believe that the dua of a parent is accepted when they make oppressive duas against their children or haram duas against their children or believing that any dua we make will definitely occur, will definitely occur uh, even if we are oppressive or if we make dua for haram or cutting off ties. For example, some people say, may God never guide you. You're not allowed to make that dua, only Allah chooses who he guides and who deserves it. You have no right to pray, play God. Or they say, may God disunite you from your family. You are not allowed. Rasulullah said, Allah will accept the dua so long as it's not about haram or cutting off of ties. May you become an addict to alcohol and drugs. You're not allowed to make such dua. This is haram. Especially the parents. I had some children say, my mother or my father made this dua. If I marry this person, will Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala curse me? I was saying, so long as you haven't done anything wrong to oppress your parents, that's an oppressive dua. You can't just make dua as you wish, like you own your kids, and vice versa to, towards anyone else. Uh, last few myths, that a child must obey their parents in everything and anything, and the parent claiming their child, children will be cursed if they do not, that is not true. But obey your parents in their rights, and where you can, but if it's something haram, you don't. Myth number 17, that a Muslim can cheat a kafir and judge that he is going to hell and to say you are cursed or to, or to be harsh and tough against him or her. Only the one who is at war with you is the one that you can be harsh towards. As for everyone else, your neighbor and non-Muslims, and you're not the one who is at, so long as the one who is at peace with you. You cannot point to a specific disbeliever and say, that guy over there, that, that Paul over there is going to hellfire. That Vanessa there is going to hellfire. No, you can't say that. They might convert to Islam. They might revert. And you can't point your finger to say, that Muhammad over there, Allah, wallah, is going to Jannah. How do you know? Only Allah decides that. You make dua that they go to Jannah. So this is also a myth in Islam. Uh, number 18, sunnah. That every single thing the Prophet, peace be upon him, did is a religious sunnah, which you must follow. For example, the hat, the turban, the gown, the izar, sitting on the floor to eat. Eating with your fingers, 
the colors white and green, pumpkin soup, the lamb's shoulder. Do you know why I mentioned all of this? This is where I'm going to get in trouble, I know. But let me tell you something. For some people, this has become a bit bizarre. They look at the imam. If the imam doesn't have the cap on, they get angry. They say the prayer is deficient. Doesn't have a turban on, is not following the sunnah. Not wearing the abaya all the time, this one, you're dressed like the kafir, they say, some people. What this does is creates classes of Muslims. And it creates a form of pride and disunity between Muslims over something that is a sunnah, but it's not a religious sunnah. And I think a lot of people don't understand the difference. Prophet Sallallahu personal things that he did, he liked white, he liked green. It's not a Muslim color. He liked wearing long shirts. It's not a specifically Muslim thing. He wore a turban. So did Abu Jahl. So did Abu Lahab. All the non-Muslims, the enemy lines, they also wore the same. The Prophet ﷺ once wore a Roman cloak, whom they were fighting. Once wore a Persian cloak, who were the enemies of Muslims. He was not copying the kuffar. So, brothers and sisters, we need to differentiate and not call people names based on that. Lastly, uh, some people believe that a myth your prayer is not accepted behind an imam who follows a different school of thought to you, a different madhab. Brothers and sisters, this is absurd. A madhab is not a religion. And there came a time in history where there were four jama'as around the Kaaba with four different imams because each one thought the other one's prayer is not accepted. Number 20, imitating the disbelievers is haram in every way. Dressing like them, eating like them, taking knowledge from them, working with them. Brothers and sisters, not all of it is imitating the kuffar. The meaning of imitating the kuffar is when you imitate a religious practice that is specific to their beliefs, like a Christian belief, a Jewish belief, a Hindu belief, a um, Buddhist belief that, that, that is special to them. Imitating that is what is haram. Tawakkul. Some people feel that tawakkul means you do not need to take into account cause and effect. Muslims believe in cause and effect. So you rely on Allah and you take the proper measures. That the Prophet ﷺ was a medical doctor. And so they follow a book called The Prophetic Medicine to the T. Only seeking medicine the Prophet ﷺ talked about as an alternative to advanced new treatments. Some people they go to camels and they take camel urine. Some people they... Uh, they do K, which is burning. Some people believe the black seed oil, they just have it for everything and anything as an alternative medicine to any advanced treatment. Brothers and sisters, it's true in some way. The camel urine it has a whole big story about it. You don't go and drink camel urine. There was a particular group of people who came to Prophet ﷺ and they had a particular disease. We don't know what that disease was. And Prophet ﷺ advised them based on what was known as a remedy to to the Arabs. He wasn't giving them a divine decree, go and drink camel urine. Rasul used to advise, he wasn't a medical doctor. He used to advise them what people did. And as medicine advanced, we take new treatments. Rasul said, any sickness that Allah sent down, he also sent down with it the cure. Whoever finds the cure has found the, the, the treatment. And there were cures not existing at the time of the Prophet so brothers and sisters, we have to open our mind and understand that part. And lastly, that there is no contagious disease. Some people believe actually that disease cannot be contagious. This is wrong. Rasulullah did not say there is no contagious disease. He said there is no contagious disease except with the permission of Allah. Meaning the contagious disease itself is not a God. Because the Arabs in those times, they used to believe that adwa, contagious diseases, is a divine, supernatural being. It was an entity of its own, like a god. Like a god that came from people to people and punished them. But the Prophet said, we don't believe in that. Contagious disease is just a normal thing, and it cannot happen without the permission of Allah. I ended here, brothers and sisters. There's so much to talk about. I can see some of you moving around, and I'm very sorry. May Allah reward you for your patience. هذا وصلى الله على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين.